I think I just love connecting with athletes. I love seeing people learn. I love seeing people improve. And this changes for me as I age. You know, initially in, in my earlier years, I loved seeing athletes succeed. You know, I loved winning races. And that was very much, you know, the metric for me, right, was, was how statistically successful are the athletes that I'm working with. Uh, although that's, that's always, of course, a driver, I think, uh, as I get older, way older, um, and also I think being a parent you know, influences this as well. I look a little bit more at the holistic side of things. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Edge Podcast. This podcast is designed to give the Team Hopper members and our greater snow sports community an insight into the world, which is competitive skiing, from the club level right through to the elite level. My name is Rochelle Gilmore, and I am hosting this series. I am a coach for Team Hotham and former athlete within the club. This podcast is a great way for us to share a behind-the-scenes look into the world of competitive skiing, coming from the Australian perspective. In this episode, I sit down and have a chat with Jeff Books. He is the current head alpine and ski cross coach at the club. He is currently working with the Fisk Group this season. He has a rich history with the club, being in various roles over the years, dating back to 2004. And he has extensive experience as a ski racing coach, both in Australia and internationally. We cover a lot of topics in this chat, ranging from athlete development, his coaching philosophy, his history as a coach, a couple of little interesting stories in there, how to select equipment for athletes at various ages and requirements, and making choices based on how to make decisions on goals and training requirements for athletes at different stages, just to name a few things. And before we get into this chat, we would like to thank Established Tree Transplanters for supporting Team Hotham. They are a second-generation, family-run, ornamental tree farm. They supply the landscape and building industries across most of Australia. They have one of the largest range of trees suitable for any domestic or commercial project and pride themselves on their long history of quality and reliability. Their family grew up skiing at Hotham back in 1981 and have continued to do so ever since. Steve Davis and the team at Established Tree Transplanters are proud to be supporting Team Hotham and look forward to doing so in the future. Please consider them for your next landscaping project and visit www.establishedtrees.com.au. Let's get into this chat. Today we have Jeff Brooks. Let's talk a little bit about Jeff's role in the club here. Hey Rochelle, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. It's really, uh, it's really good to be here. It's an honor to speak with you today. So my role in the club this year is uh, officially on paper the head ski cross coach. The position is intended to uh, develop the training programs and the facilities and, and ultimately technical and tactical capacities of our athletes in a, in a ski cross specific context. However, given the nature of the pandemic and demographic of the membership, I've been dispatched to work with the Fisk Group primarily for this season, as well as oversee the relevant aspects of the ski cross initiative. Great, I love that. Let's talk a little bit about your coaching philosophy. I think for me that passion and empowerment would, would be the, the absolute foundation and the anchor in, uh, in my coaching philosophy or athletic, athletic development philosophy, sorry. I think that um, you know, a passion for the sport and a passion for a healthy lifestyle and a passion for, I like to think of, of becoming an expert or becoming an expert, I think is, uh, is really quite, uh, quite a powerful starting point. Uh, combined with empowerment and ownership, of the athletic process. I think at all ages, whether you're dealing with 
young kids, um, you know, do 10s and 12s and 14s, 16s, fifth athletes and beyond, that, that empowerment and engagement and ownership of their athletic journey is really important to make sure that it's sustainable and they'll be here for the long term. Yeah. So how would you like instill passion in like your like younger athletes? <laughs> that's, Start a, with that that, that's a great question. I think ultimately it's the role of the coach to pass on that passion and pass on their enthusiasm for the sport to provide some uh, some ignition in younger athletes per se and, and fun I think is uh, is the best part to doing that. What about like the parental role? If parents are in a situation where they can make it fun for the kids, if they can uh, they can facilitate uh, a good working relationship between uh, the child, the young athlete, and the coach, then uh, I think that's that's a really a really good starting point to develop the passion. And I think that parents' scheme with their kids is also really quite a, a good way to develop the passion with the kids. What about in like older athletes? I guess, you know, burnout can be a real thing for some of the older guys. Mm-hmm. Like what are some of the strategies that I guess you have for, you know, your 14 plus? In, in terms of avoiding burnout. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's, um, it's certainly a challenge in terms of balancing all the aspects of life for, as you say, an athlete 14 plus in terms of school and family and social and working out and training and such. And I think that probably time management would be uh, would be the most important aspect uh, of managing the risk of burnout. For sure. I have quite a lot of questions to ask you. So let's maybe talk a little bit about your ski journey. My ski journey started pretty late, actually. Um, so I was coming from, I guess, uh, a relatively high-level competitive ice hockey background. And uh, my family was very much a skiing family, but uh, I just hadn't really done much to that point. So I was a little late getting into it. I always considered myself to be a skier and specifically a ski racer, even though I hadn't really done it until like 15. But uh, coming from a, a sporting background, specifically ice hockey, I was able to pick things up pretty fast. And then I started with uh, with teaching um, in Eastern Canada, just north of Toronto. Ski in teaching? The, ski teaching, yes. Yeah, in the real, uh, it's called the pretty flat super cold part of Canada or one of the flat and super cold parts of Canada. And then yeah, I moved into, uh, I guess, some more senior teaching positions and ski school director positions. And while I was coaching at the same time, and I ultimately moved into full-time coaching roles. Um, when I initially came down here in 2004, that's when I started coaching year-round at that point and, and moved into uh, some club management roles and program director and athletic director type jobs. Yeah, and then just Got totally hooked on this as a profession. This is a lifestyle, and uh, and ultimately, I mean, everything for us really in the last uh, gosh, this makes me feel old. But since uh, since ninety seven has really been centered entirely around ski coaching. Yeah, I mean, you've got a pretty impressive resume as far as coaching is concerned. So, you guess, I guess you started out with coaching in Canada. What inspired you to come to Australia? <laughs> like, how on earth that's, did you get here? That, that's a really good question. It's a really Question. So, uh, I mean, ultimately, uh, my current wife, um, Heidi, and I had uh, had gotten together in the early 2000s, and, and she was a lifelong hockey skier to that point. Uh, I had some friends who were working in the ski school here and also with the ski club. Uh, so there was a fair amount of, uh, let's call it positive peer pressure to come down. And um, a guy that I was just getting to know at the time, Luke Pelche, who's currently my business partner with an endeavor that, uh, that he and I had together, um, was the program director here. And so ultimately, I came down to work with Luke. And then that's that's how I got hooked. Well, I guess here in, in some different capacities, um, 
classes. So did you instruct here first as well? My first year I taught a couple days with the ski school, uh, typically two days with the ski school, and then I, I coached with the club full-time. Yeah, <laughs> so that was, uh, that was the 2004 season, and then uh, 2005 season, I took over as uh, the, the position as program director at the time, and then I was in um, you know, various incarnations of that position until 2013. 2014, 2014-15, uh, more of a consulting capacity with the club, and then in 2017, I was on the board board of directors in a vice president role for a couple of years and, and now I'm back in the coaching role again. So in one way or another, uh, you know, this club's been a big part of my life since 2004. So how do you feel about being back in the club, back on the ground, out in the snow, putting in gates with all of us? It's awesome. I really dig it, actually. It's uh, it's fun to to see some of the athletes who were quite young when, when I was managing the club previously, who are in, in their uh, more formative years, I guess, at the moment, for lack, lack of a better term, some of the 15, 16, 7-year-olds, 17-year-olds, um, rather. So that part's really neat to see it come full circle, and some of the athletes who were here previously are, are now working in the club, athletes such as yourself and, and Hugh, who I used to coach um, you know, back in the day, and, and uh, some of the athletes working towards Olympic qualification this year in terms of Lee and Harry, and just generally being around the place is, is quite a lot of fun. It's, it's for sure different being here in a different capacity, so being solely in a coaching role, I think, is, uh, is unique for sure for me, just given that uh, my context previously was different. I quite dig it, for sure. Not that I didn't enjoy what I did before, but uh, I do definitely enjoy um, you know, just being uh, able to focus all of my efforts on the coaching side. Yeah, and the athletes. And the athletes, yeah. of course. Yeah, so obviously you've seen Harry and Louie kind of go through to, I guess, the top of what we usually expect from Australian athletes. How how do you feel about all of that? I guess you've had quite a lot to do with them in their earlier years. Yeah, you know, ultimately what we want is, as coaches is, is to do the best job we can with the context in which we have the athletes at any given point. So if you're working with an athlete at... U16 level, for example, you want to make sure that you have as much impact as you have, can possibly have there to give them the tools to be successful at the next stage and next stages down the road. So I think we all um, we all want to do our, our part in, in the short time that we have with someone and understanding that the time of an athlete is always short. So we certainly want to have as much of an impact as possible during the time we have. Maybe I'll ask you this question that I asked Louis the other day. To you, like, what is a good coach? Good question. I, look, I think a good coach is is a lot of things, right? I think first and foremost, a good coach is is a good motivator. Um, they're a good communicator. They're supportive. You know, I think that the longer I do this, the more the more I realize that the coach's ability to engage the athlete and ultimately connect with the athlete is is the most important thing. I think the soft skills, um, the intangibles, are are ultimately what makes a good coach. I mean, of course, the the technical and sports specific expertise have to be at a high level, but um, you know, I think you have a lot of technically very capable people out there who aren't as effective as coaches as, as some some of their peers who might not be as technically proficient, but a little bit better at the connection side of things with the athletes. So I think that ultimately a good coach is able to engage with the athlete and ultimately figure out their why, figure out why they're there, and, and, and bring the best out of them through uh, through an understanding of, of what the athletes. Is trying to do and why they're there. Yeah, all of those communication skills. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of different things to communicate. Well, we have a couple of interesting stories that I'd like to ask you about. That sounds ominous. There is a picture of you on the Team Hotham website, you hanging upside down from a chairlift 
We would love to know how that happened. It's it's not quite hanging upside down, but uh, it is uh, it is definitely hanging from the chairlift. I was in northern Sweden at uh, a resort called Kodelis, and I was attempting to get off the chairlift when uh, when my camera, which was being housed or became a case, more accurately a pelican case. I don't know if you can picture, you know, about uh, twenty centimeters across, fifteen centimeters deep, uh, an airtight waterproof case. And uh, that got stuck in between the back bench and the bottom bench of the chairlift. And so I went to get off the chairlift and it was stuck. So I was standing up off the chairlift, but I was actually attached to the chairlift via this Pelican case, which was attached by a, a rock climbing carabiner to my, uh, my work belt. And typically chairlifts have a, a trip cable up top, right? So if someone does get stuck on the chair, that trip cable gets stripped, chairlift gets unplugged and it's an emergency switch, turn it off. This particular chairlift did not have that. And then I thought, okay, well, no big deal. As I'm going around the bull wheel, the, uh, the lifting up top is going to see me. And the lifting up top didn't see me. And, and he was a student and he was looking at uh, some uh, some lectures, <laughs> sadly. Uh, so I went, uh, I don't know, maybe about 200 meters down the line of the chairlift before it was stopped. And uh, I was about 12 meters up at that point and um, hanging by my belt and one arm perched precariously over the back of the chair and um, my belt had flipped upside down so the, the two steel prongs on my belt were poking into my sternum and I could feel blood running down my stomach. It was a little bit of a tricky situation for sure. I mean at first it was it was quite humorous in terms of uh, having a little internal giggle um, to myself and then I realized that I didn't quite know how the situation was going to end. <laughs> but uh, after uh, after about, I, I think from what I understand, it was about 12 to 15 minutes being stuck up there. I was I was able to maneuver myself in a little bit of an awkward one-arm chin-up um, to get myself back up on the chair. And then um, my athletes looking at me at, my bo- at the bottom, rather, of the run with my skis, and, and we kept going. But um, that is the story of being stuck on a chairlift in Sweden. And I was scared of heights before that happened, and uh, this certainly hasn't, uh, hasn't helped my cause since then. You're really um, scared of heights. I am scared of heights, absolutely. For sure, I get scared on T-bars. <laughs> it's a bit windy. <laughs> no, all the time. Let's talk a little bit about your work coaching the Australian Olympic ski cross team. Yeah, for sure. So I worked um, for the ski cross team in 2012-13. We were, we were due to go to the Games that year as well in 2014. Sochi, um, ultimately, uh, some family commitments I felt were, were more important and, and I a few too many balls in play at that point, so I, I decided that that was one that, uh, that I had to let go, even though I was looking forward to, uh, to the experience of going to the games with the crew. So, uh, I worked with the ski cross team as a technical consultant, as a, an alpine technical consultant specifically, so my role was uh, was more around uh, improving the alpine skills of the group in GS and, ski, or GS and Super G in order to uh, to be faster in, in turns and tucking and gliding sections. Within a ski cross track. Maybe let's like expand a little bit about that. I guess ski cross kind of came from this like freestyle, wild kind of sport initially, but it's just gotten more and more technical over the years. And I guess, yeah, by that 2013 ish, it was definitely becoming a lot more technical. More technical and more professional as well. Not as much shoving around. Um, what do you think, I guess, causes a sport like that to become more technical? I think in the early stages, I mean, it's, it's, it's always been quite technical, but in the early stages, it was, um, it was a newer sport, right? And, and there was a little, perhaps at, at a real you know, fine, high level, um, a little less that was truly known about what was fast in ski cross. 
and uh, and that was improving um, over the years with more work with uh, with biomechanics and national teams investing more heavily into um, into what was happening in the ski cross world. I think as uh, as soon as the big countries get behind it a little bit more, then, then things are are for sure going to be a little bit more professional and structured. And ultimately, right now, I mean the, the skill level of, of ski cross athletes is super high. I mean it always has been, but uh, it's really quite impressive. I mean a good ski cross athlete is. They're typically a, a really quite an excellent GS and super G steer as well. I guess I want to turn the question around a little bit and I want to know why ski cross and training ski cross is probably something that is good for alpine skiing. Like, where's the crossover? What is the good, bad, and the ugly? The good, the bad, and the ugly. Ultimately, if we're, if we're looking at, uh, at training ski cross as a tool to become a better ski racing athlete, yeah, exactly. A better ski racer, yeah. I mean, ski cross has. It has a lot of the key aspects that uh, that contribute to make a, a good technical skier, um, or a good technical skier, just a good all-around skier. There's more than just the technical side, but a good all-around skier. Specifically, I think in, in GS and Super G, but uh, certainly ski cross is, is a great tool to develop the uh, the whole skill set of, uh, of young and developing athletes and, and high-performing athletes as well. I mean, you've got tucking, turning, jumps, terrain, starts. It's got you know six really really cool aspects. If we look at those. <laughs> At the risk of being redundant, starts, tucking and gliding, turning, terrain, jumps. Then you've got the head-to-head piece, too, which is really, really cool. Um, in very, very unique rides, so you have a lot of athletes in the ski cross world who are quite fast, um, when it's just them on the track, right? So they qualify typically quite fast, but once you get to the head-to-head head environment, um, into the heats, I mean, it's a different story altogether. It's such a, such a cool aspect of the sport. I guess brings out more of a competitive side because you can see... Who's next to you? Who's in front Absolutely. of you? Who's behind you? Absolutely. Like, Damn it. And, and some people really thrive in that environment. It's kind of like a dual a dual GS or a dual slalom, right? Some people just absolutely step up in that environment. They love to they love to chase, so they love to be chased. And yeah, the people who, who I think are are typically quite good in that environment tend to be good in the head to head stuff in the speed cross context as well. So Jeff, I would love to know a little bit about international racer and how that all came about. Yeah, so International Racer, uh, which is uh, which is a business that I'm partnered in, uh, was formed in 2005, founded by Luke Pelche, a former, former program director here at the club, and Justin Hewitt, a former president here at the club. They had the vision of, of just creating a high-performance, um, initially, series of camps at some quality training venues worldwide, and uh, since then, it's, it's grown into year-round programming in addition to special projects and camps. I became partners with the boys in 2008. We've been at it ever since. We've got training bases in uh, New Zealand, Central Europe, uh, Scandinavia, and uh, in Sweden and Norway, and then uh, also in Canada. Um, I guess the question that we wanted to know a little bit about was, obviously, the more time on snow, the better off an athlete is generally going to be. Within reason, yeah. 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 And maybe we can talk a little bit about that later. But like, at what point should parents like maybe be thinking about sending their kid overseas for a camp or two? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think that um, if we take a look at maybe if I, I answer that with just creating a little bit of a framework, right, to put a family's competitive context into uh, a little bit of a, a categorization, if we will, in terms of understanding what the family is trying to achieve. So if the family is looking to be or or have world beating skiers that are going to be Olympic champions 12, 15, 18 years down the road, then they need to ski a lot for sure. And they need to ski a fair amount in, in that age, in addition to having having a good uh, a good background in a number of other sports as well. Ultimately, a good ski racer is going to be a really good athlete. 
And then if a family is looking for their child to be really successful in inner schools or domestic competition, then how much they need to see is um, is a little bit different. And uh, so ultimately, I think that the decisions around training camps overseas uh, should ultimately stem from what the objectives are from the family. Like I said, if, if the kid, if the young athlete is um, is looking to be a, an absolute world beater, then, then they're going to have to see well north of 100, 120 days a year for sure. And, and if they're looking for less, then they certainly don't have to see that much. So it's, it's important that families find that, that right fit for that. Yeah. So it's probably a bit more of an individual case by case yeah, kind for of sure. situation. For sure. It's absolutely, absolutely. Even as the athlete gets older, then the need to train overseas becomes a little bit greater as well. But I think that a piece that I find um, certainly historically that gets missed a little bit is, is really maximizing the domestic opportunities down here and, and making sure that, that uh, families and athletes are, are looking to take advantage of as many ski days as possible in the Southern Hemisphere. It really is, as, as you said, it's about volume and quality volume, right? And quality volume combined with athleticism. And there's a lot of, a lot of different ways to, uh, to build an athlete. And if you like, we can talk about some of the, the different models to do so. But uh, I think that before families are, are looking at doing a ton overseas, um, we need to take a look at making the most of what we have down here as well, taking advantage of things like the spring camps, of September skiing. Historically, a lot of ski racers don't ski in September, which is a total waste. That's when the ski fitness is up, terrain is typically you know, fully open, the mountains are in great shape, the snow is good, more melt-freeze cycles in the spring, um, so it'll be easier to get hill space. There's so many benefits of skiing in September, and uh, I think that's the first thing that we want to take advantage of. And then we can take a look at, at bolting on some more training based on doing a good job in the Southern Hemisphere first. Maybe let's talk a little bit about, you know, that like athlete development. Are you looking for some context around being a good all-around athlete to, to be a good ski racer? I mean, if an athlete lacks athleticism off of skis, it's certainly not going to get better once they put skis and boots on. For sure. So uh, having a foundation rich in, in varied and broad sports skills is, is absolutely essential um, to be more specific later on in any sport. But uh, you know, for our context right now, talking about ski racing, for sure. And uh, I think there's some, you know, some great guidance through frameworks like uh, long-term athletic development training plans and, um, and really understanding exactly what young athletes should be doing at what ages and stages to optimize their development, the developmental tongue twister windows of opportunity. I guess with the context of our younger athletes in mind and like creating them to be the best kind of athletes that they possibly can be, what are some things that we can do with like our U8s, U10s? Yeah, I think we can just get them outside and get them moving. It's sampling a lot of different sports and being challenged to move in a lot of different ways and doing lots of different activities and having some good family sport, probably really the best thing in terms of developing a healthy attitude towards uh, just activity in general, but um, developing sport and general movement skills through a variety of different uh, different challenges. Yeah, and I guess obviously ski racing is an individual sport, but how do you feel about, I guess, like cross-training with like team sports? I think that the more cross-training that we can do, the better. For sure. Um, so uh, young ski racers should, be, uh, should absolutely be participating in a pretty wide variety of sports, um, you know, catching, kicking, gliding, throwing sports. Um, gymnastics is, of course, great, and, and there are so many cool sports to play here domestically that, you know, I think the kids should probably only stop moving when they're sleeping and, 
than otherwise we're doing something for. Well, I guess Australia is, I guess, notoriously, we're a very athletic country. You know, there's a lot of great athletes that come out of Australia. The Olympics are on right now, and I guess we're showing how strong we are as a nation, sport-wise, in the Summer Olympics. It would be great if we could build that up a little bit more in the Winter Olympics. Absolutely, absolutely. And there really is quite a, quite a rich tapestry of, of success um, in winter sport in Australia, for sure. And, and at the moment, um, I think there's some really good things happening within the athletic pathway um, in the alpine world in Australia. And there's lots of good things happening across uh, motocross, <laughs> rather, and ski cross, and cross country, and moguls, and, uh, and halfpipe and such. And uh, Australia really is quite a successful winter sports organization. There's no Australia. And the Olympic Winter Institute of Australia, the OWIA, are very successful organizations and you know highly respected internationally and um, you know for our context in, in alpine and ski cross those are pretty tough sports and it's really tough to break through but uh, there's no there's no reason that we can't be competitive right I think that uh, that general concept of a, a small nation thinking big is, is very apt in this situation we absolutely have the resources to be competitive competitive with the best in the world but uh, it starts with creating a culture that, that we can do that. And uh, not not a culture that that states that's pretty good for an Australian, but a culture that really um, prioritizes excellence and uh, and for sure. For sure. Maybe let's diverge back a little bit. Obviously, at the different age levels and different development stages with the kids, they are kind of demanding different types of skis, and we would just like to know, you know, for the parents and the kids, like at what stages they need what skis and yeah would you like to explain yeah for sure um why don't we break this down by uh, by age and stage so if we start with uh, the u8s and u10s together um, they're going to require a, a pretty decent uh, let's call it a, a multi-race ski and there are tons of good models out there available from uh, from all of the major brands specifically in-house we're partnered with uh, vocal rosignol and, uh, and head and uh, they all each have front for sure Great, uh, great models, but uh, we're looking for something that's roughly chin to forehead height for the kids. And, and again, just a, a good general piece to ski. And if the family is so inclined to take a look at getting something, uh, something a little wider um, of the twin tip variety, I mean, that's really cool, but certainly not necessary. By any means, it is very possible to ski off based on, uh, on piece skis. That's, uh, it's totally okay. And then as we move into the U12 world, athletes are going to be more specific in their training environments. And at that point, it's, uh, it's quite beneficial to have both a slalom ski and a GSC. And uh, then as they move into U14, U16, they absolutely have to have slalom skis and GS skis. As the training becomes more specific and they have to have the right ski for the job and in the fist world, then we're looking to optimize um, the ski selection and model to make sure that uh, they can have the best possible skis. For the job, we take a look at uh, at understanding the variables that will ultimately influence the selection of skis by way of uh, ski model and length and construction and these kinds of things. We look first and foremost at skill, then we'll look at strength, and then weight, and then height. Um, and traditionally, height would be considered to be the most important variable of what we use as a metric for ski selection, but for for purposes in, in the athletic context, um, it's best to look at skill and strength and weight. That's uh, really the leading factors in yeah. figuring out how long we're going to go. And ultimately, a better skier makes more pressure and requires more stability. Um, and they, you know, they both can handle a longer ski, but they also need a longer ski for that stability as well. And obviously, when they get to like the children's races, 
stage, is there a certain length or radius that skis have to be? Yeah, so if we're talking the, the, the children's racing stage at, at U14, as an example, being that entry point, um, yeah, so all, all skis have to meet uh, FIST requirements, so the, uh, the global governing body requirements. Um, in any way, skis that would be purchased are all you know, very typically compliant of uh, those regulations, but um, you know, slalom skis need to be taller than 130, and GS skis need to be longer than 150, or greater than 17 meter radius, and, and these kinds of things. So maybe not uh, the appropriate context to go through the, uh, the nuances of, uh, of those specs at this point. We certainly can if you want. It's just creating an awareness that it's something that I guess we could look up with the races and specific kids and specific a- Absolutely. And uh, maybe we can uh, hashtag a link to uh, to the webpage on uh, on our website that goes over that, uh, that stuff and equipment as well. Just a bit of a guide as to how the, the athletes will progress in, in length and model and flex and whatnot from U8 all the way to the fist world. And, and for us, the simplest way to do it is start with the lengths that the athletes have to be on at fist. So there are specific lengths for men and women in the fist years, and then we just count backwards from there to secondary U16, first year U16, all the way down to uh, reverse engineer what ski length they should be on at what time to make sure that they're not taking massive jumps at any given point, right? So we wouldn't want uh, a young female athlete to be on a 165 GS ski in her second year U16 if she needs to be on a 188 30 meter ski or first year fist, right? That's going to be a big jump and that's not going to be good for anybody. So yeah, we want to make sure that there's a pretty good plan in place. And again, there's some great resources on our website around uh, taking some sequential steps in length and radius and such in ski selection. What about poles? Yeah, poles are pretty important for sure. I mean, they need to be the right length. I don't think they have to be uh, overly uh, fancy is the first word that comes to mind. But poles, poles can be quite expensive, or they can also be quite affordable. Um, the important thing is that they're the right length, that they have baskets and straps, appropriate grips for the size of the hand, uh, particularly for the younger ones. So uh, something relatively basic is fine for the U8s and U10s. Um, the U12s, and we'd start to look at, at more of a specific race pole, um, typically from, uh, from Lucky or you know, we, we do need to have very specific gear once we get into the U14, U16, and FIS races, for sure. And one of the most important things for racing, race suits. When are, we, when are the kids starting to wear those? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as, uh, as the audience may very well know, um, uh, race suits have been banned in inner schools from, is it Div 4 down? Is that right? I don't know, we've never done that. That's, that's a good drive. I've never done in schools either. I might this year, actually. I yeah, think under 10s. Is it under 10s? Is the rumor I heard. Well, but we might need to fact check that one. I think we definitely need to fact check that one. It's, uh, it's maybe a little bit uh, outside of my, uh, my typical field of view. Yeah, in terms of uh, race suits internally, um, U12 would be that, that first time that uh, you know, it's a good thing to have a race suit. For sure, it's, it's a requirement by U14. At U12, it's, it's one of those nice-to-haves, but uh, not absolutely essential. It is definitely an interesting thing to know whether they need it or not. Let's flip the coin a little bit, because you're also a, you're a coach in the club, but you're also a parent in the club. How do you feel about that? Well, this is pretty exciting, actually, for me to be uh, to be a parent in this space. And uh, I love to see my kids uh, be a part of this community. And, and it's been, uh, this community has been a big part of my life for a long time. It's, it's given me a lot. It's great to see my kids participating in the programs here and having fun with their buddies and, and just learning about this sport and applying themselves at this sport. I, I really couldn't be happier to have my kids involved. What are some of the things that 
can you do as a parent to like inspire them skiing? <laughs> that, that's a good question. I I don't think that I, I would do anything uh, different than uh, than other parents. Probably much less. I think that uh, in an effort to not a crazy crazy overzealous parent, I, I probably don't push the kids enough in the skiing context. I think I uh, you know well we it's it's very much a partnership of course with myself and Heidi. You know we let the kids drive it for sure. Right, they're going to take this where where they want to take it. Right, it's their project, and you know, so far they're they're both keen on it. You know we'll see where it goes, but I mean ultimately at this stage we're we're just hoping they uh, they have a good time and, and develop a good passion for the sport and, and develop some some good skiing skills and, and friendships along the way. So really no uh, no major long term objectives for us. Just good to get them out and, and having fun with the boys. Yeah, yeah, I love that sport. All of that is just such an important part of growing up. Let's talk a little bit about. I guess the commitment of skiing coming from like the club level going to the elite level. I kind of touched on it, but we haven't, I guess, talked about that progression to get from what does it take to get to the elite level of ski racing? Can you give us an idea of the commitment to training for the elite level? Yeah, I mean, if we're, we're going to define the elite level as, as, let's say, national team and above domestically here in Australia, I think that's, uh, that's going to take a, a lot of time on snow, um, a lot of years of, of deliberate practice, some pretty careful attention to uh, one's physical training and more importantly as a basis to that, one's athletic development, just around general physical literacy and optimizing key developmental windows, windows of opportunity. But in order to take that step, let's say from the club level to the national team level, it's it's a major commitment for sure. It's it's absolutely optimizing all aspects of one's training program uh, to put them in the best spot to be successful. So that's being uh, as good on the hill as you are in the classroom, being really important, optimizing one's scholastic development, being a really great time manager, being an absolute uh, physical machine, I think is really important. You know, strength and power is, is absolutely the leading currency in alpine ski racing. And, and you know, if the physical engine isn't really good, then uh, there's very little chance of success and longevity and durability uh, within the sport of ski racing as well. Time on snow, the commitment to the sport. Let's go for something a little bit lighter. You clearly love being a coach. What are some of the things that you love about being a coach? <laughs> Great question. I think I just love connecting with athletes. I love seeing people learn. I love seeing people improve. And this changes for me as I age. You know, initially in, in my earlier years, I loved seeing athletes succeed. You know, I loved winning races. And that was very much, you know, the metric for me, right, was, was how statistically successful are the athletes that I'm working with. Uh, although that's, that's always, of course, a driver, I think, uh, as I get older, way older, um, and also I think being a parent you know, influences this as well. I look a little bit more at the holistic side of things and at the intangibles in really looking at, I think, the, the long-term aspects of, of how coaching can build resiliency, build work ethic, build uh, determination and motivation in athletes, that, that general aspect that uh, a good athlete is is typically going to do anything, how they do everything, and uh, if they're really striving for success, in the sporting arena, then that's generally going to spill over to all aspects of their lives as well. So for me, that's the fun part. I think that that, uh, that starts to ring a little bit more true as you're in the sport a little bit longer and, and you see things come full circle a little bit, right? You know, the, the first athletes that uh, that I worked with are, are now in their good 30s. And so, yeah, you're just seeing, uh, you're seeing the impact that, that ski racing 
that sport had on their on their lives. Yeah, what are some life skills to, that you think people gather from being a ski racer? Obviously, not everyone is willing to get to this elite level that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what are some of the life skills? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, sport, any sport, obviously for our purpose, uh, our purpose here, ski racing and ski cross, and, and broadly speaking, the free ride world as well. I mean, we're looking at the development of, of good character, character skills, and good life skills, work ethic goal setting, resiliency. I would hire an athlete over a non-athlete for a job in a heartbeat. You know, they know how to coach, they know how to be coached, they know how to take criticism, they know how to set set some targets and work towards those targets. And uh, I think it's it's just a great way to learn how to win. It's a great way to learn how to lose and, and ultimately just work at, at being good at, at something, right? applying oneself to being good at something. The forever athlete. The, ooh. How do you always have so much energy? I feel like you're such an energetic person. Is that right? I, I, I don't know if I would always agree. I recently got into coffee and uh, and that uh, that might be joining. After uh, a lifelong non-coffee drinker, very, very proud to be a non-coffee drinker. I was reading a book not long ago that espoused the uh, the cognitive benefits and the longevity benefits of, uh, of coffee drinking. So I, I started that uh, that journey. Maybe that's the key. Honestly, I, I really I really enjoy what I do, and, and I'm grateful to do what I do. And you know, I think it's it's easy to have some energy when when, when one's uh, enjoying their profession. For sure, I guess like working with you as like a former athlete and also a coach now, like you're so passionate about what you do, and you're so like detail oriented. You really care. It's uh, definitely a good thing to be around. It's, it's a humbling comment. What's one, or maybe a couple of pieces of advice that you could give our young athletes with the club? I think free ski and free ski a lot, and always, always do more than your coaches are asking you to do. So if the training day starts at three thirty and the lifts are open until five, then you get out there and you rip it up with your buddies until five. I think that's, uh, you know, from a skiing context, the best thing to do. And then athletically, play as many different sports as possible, you know, in order to sample things and, and determine where your passions really lie. But uh, also through that sampling process, that provides the foundation to be uh, to be a master of, of, you know, one sport eventually or, or just be great at a whole bunch of different sports and, and just get a little different skills. And what about for the parents? As, as a parent myself, I, I think that certainly passing this advice on to myself, which is ultimately support the kids in having fun, I think is probably the best thing and, uh, and allow the kids to be in the driver's seat in, in terms of uh, determining where, uh, where sport's going to go for them. For sure. That's a nice little way to wrap it all up. Thank you so much for doing this with me, Jeff. I think we've covered a lot of interesting and valuable topics. Yeah, that was awesome, Rochelle. Thanks uh, thanks for taking the time and thanks for having me. And that is a wrap on our episode with Jeff Books. Thank you for listening and be sure to click the subscribe button on wherever you are listening so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with someone who you think might like a little listen. Also, if you're on Apple Podcasts and if you have time, please leave a rating and review because it'll help people find the Edge podcast. See you later.